0: Good afternoon, everyone. It's a pleasure to be with you and uh, to share with you this morning. Um, I was just saying to my wife uh, in, in the break, it's wonderful to see so many Christians. It's a beautiful thing, isn't it? Uh, sometimes you can feel like you're you are alone in the kingdom, but we, we're never alone, there's always many others, and it's a real privilege to come and to see so many of you in these two meetings and uh, to share God's word with you. So Father, I pray that you'd help me now by your Spirit, I ask that you give me grace, that I'd communicate clearly and effectively. Uh, thank you for this church. Thank you for the vineyard. Thank you for all that you've called them to be and all that you've called them to do. And we, we ask that you'd come and you teach every one of us now through your word in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like to speak to you this morning about becoming a friend of God. Uh, I said in the first meeting that I've been very interested in the book of James for the last year, and I've been teaching out of that book in our own church for the last year. And uh, I want to start in James chapter 2 with you this morning, and um, I'm going to read three or four verses, and then kind of summarize the second chapter, and then speak to you about what I want to speak to you about in terms of becoming a friend of God. So James starts like this, and he says, Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? James is a blunt man. I quite like that about him. He doesn't mince words, he gets straight to the point. He says, faith apart from works is useless. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. What an incredible accolade over this man's life. Abraham called a friend of God. And then James concludes, he says, You see, a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And I'd, write, I'd, I'd like to have a look at this theme this morning and majoring on the thing of becoming a friend of God. Uh, in the second chapter of James, James is most concerned with a, a number of things, but the, one of the main themes of chapter two is that James is concerned with the influence that our faith has on other people. He's very concerned about that. Our faith has either good influence or bad influence of people. Other people say, those Christians, there they go, those hypocrites, or they say, those Christians, there they go, look at how they live. Our faith has an influence on people, good or, or bad. And so he uses... He's uh, writing to the early church to these Jewish believers, and he, and he writes, and he uses three strong examples in the first portion of chapter two, and I'm gonna summarize them quickly. He says this. He says, faith without works is dead, dead. And the word there, dead, is the same word that Paul uses in Romans chapter six, verse 11. Romans chapter six, verse 11 says this, that we are dead to sin, but we are made alive in Christ. We are dead to sin, and when Paul says that, dead, he means corpse. He says, that's how sin should be to us. We should be towards sin like a corpse, uh, cold, lifeless, having no, nothing to do with it. That's how we should be towards sin, and yet we are alive to Christ. And so James uses the same word. He says, faith without, work, without works is like a corpse. It is dead, it is useless, it is cold, it is lifeless, it is useless for you, and it's useless for anybody else. Has no effect on anybody. Faith without works. And so he, he says, he chastises these early believers, because he says, well, you know, if people come into your meetings and you say to a rich man, sit there in a place of privilege, and you say to a poor man, sit over there, he says you are a wicked man with evil in your heart. There's no discrimination based on race, education, uh, economic power in the kingdom of God. We are all equals before the cross. He says, don't be a believer like that. These are strong, strong words to these, these people. And so he says, faith without works is dead. The second thing, he anticipates an argument that I've heard often in the church. He says, oh, you know, I'm not very practical. It's not my gift to be practical. You know, I can pray. I love praying for people, but don't get me to do anything. That's not my gift. James whacks that right on the head. He says, some of you will say, I have faith. And he says, I will show you my faith by what I do. Don't talk to me about faith apart from works. I will show you my faith by what I do. And he anticipates that argument and he nails it straight up. And then he says a third thing. He says, even the demons believe in God and they shudder. So he says, Well done if you believe in God. Even the demons do and they shudder. And so he. He summarizes this thing. He says, Don't be a, a lazy believer. But the Bible also speaks about inactive faith in these terms. It talks about an unbelieving heart. That's what inactive faith is it's an unbelieving heart. And he says, Don't be like the demons that believe, you Christians. He's talking to save people. He says, Don't be like a believing demon. A believing demon has an ascent, an intellectual ascent towards the gospel. It understands the gospel intellectually. It says the demons even shudder when they think about God because they know it's true. But they don't, it doesn't change them. It has no impact in their lives and they do nothing for the kingdom. And so he says, don't be a believer like that. Don't have a faith that's corpse-like. Don't have a faith that is lazy. Don't have a faith that believes like the demons do. I mean, this is strong language. Would you agree? I was saying to some of the... I don't want to get distracted. So he uses these three illustrations. And uh, I want to say this. True faith, the kind of faith that James is calling us to, the kind of faith that Paul describes is a... And adherence adherence to the gospel that compels us to live in a different way. It compels us to live sacrificially. It compels us to give to others and other people. That's true faith. And James is encouraging us and saying, That's the kind of faith I want you to have. And he's writing to the early church. John Calvin, the great reformer, summarized he said, The true church has three components. One, it's where the word is preached. That's how you can tell the church is true. Do they preach the word? Two, Is there discipline in the church? In other words, are our lives mutually submitted to each other? We allow people to speak into our lives so we can be transformed by the power of the Spirit. And thirdly, he said that um, a true church is where the sacraments are administered. So we broke bread together this morning. Beautiful thing to do. The other thing that the Bible asks us to do is baptize believers. He said those are the three things that summarize a true church. I agree with him. I would like to add a fourth thing. The true church is always evangelistic. We are converted to Christ. We come by grace to the cross. We are converted to the community of Christ. We love the church, and we are are committed to the cause of Christ. And the cause of Christ is that the gospel should go to every people group, every nation of the world, so that we can see the the gospel priest people saved, and Jesus can come back again. Uh, if, If one of those things, I'm so tired... I'm sorry to rave, one of my pet raves. I'm so tired of this individualistic society that says, I can know Jesus without loving his church. It is absolutely nonsense. It is deficient. It is not biblical salvation. If we are saved to Christ, we love his church. We are part of the community. We are with believers. We worship together. We encourage others to be there. I'm sorry, I am passionate, all right? And I'm loud, and I know. I saw some people in the, in the first service going like, I thought, okay, Andrew, too loud. Just a little bit softer. But uh, yes, the church is evangelistic. Amen. It is evangelistic. And this is what these early Jewish believers had forgotten. That's what James is reminding them about he's saying it is the most important thing that you are saved absolutely and the words the language that James uses he talks about the perfect law that brings freedom he talks about the the gospel of the law of freedom he's talking about salvation when Paul speaks about salvation Paul uses these words, these words you are justified God's anger has been satisfied all the wrath of God has been taken upon Christ that's what he talks about the language that he uses when he talks about salvation It's the same thing, different language. So James is saying to these early believers, certainly you are saved. That is the most important thing. But he reminds them, he says, don't just be a hearer of the word, be a doer of the word. If you are a doer of the word, you will be blessed. And so that's the summary of the first portion of that chapter. Artie Kendall puts it like this. He says, the gospel first makes us fit for heaven, And then it makes us fit for earth, but in that order. Of course, the blood makes the way open so we can enjoy God's presence and his power in our lives. But then it affects how we live. It has to affect how we live. So James is really talking about an obedience that comes from faith that should motivate us and encourage us. And why is obedience so important? Well, obedience threatens the devil. He doesn't like obedience, uh, you, you might um, you might have perfect theology. You might understand the work of the Holy Spirit perfectly. Until you become a doer, it doesn't threaten the devil at all. <laughs> so I said in the first meeting, it's great to to have a devotional life. So you say, God, I'm going to get up tomorrow at six o'clock, and I'm going to pray, and I'm going to read Your Word, and I'm going to feed myself doesn't threaten the devil in the least until you actually get up and do it. And then you might say to me, well, Ant, you know, when I do that, it's like everything goes wrong in my life. All hell breaks loose in my my life when I actually do stuff. You're absolutely right. You know why? Because the accuser, the enemy of God, the enemy of truth doesn't want you to do that. He'll do everything he can to distract you, everything they can to discourage you that you don't spend time with God and I don't spend time with God. You know, I love Paul. I love his, his absolute focus. He says this to the Thessalonian church in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 18. He says, I wanted to come to you, but I could not because the devil hindered me. He says also in another place in the New Testament, he says, God has opened a great door of ministry to me, but there are many obstacles, there are many hindrances in my way. And I was just reflecting on that in my own life and just thinking that's not how sometimes I talk and that's not how sometimes a lot of Christians talk. A lot of Christians will use this language. If God opens the door, I'll take it as confirmation. If God doesn't open the door, I won't move. You know what that sounds like to me? That sounds like a theology of providential hindrance. I'm saying to you, I believe sometimes there are doors that need to be beaten down because they are God's doors, but there are many hindrances in the way. Uh, And I I said in the first meeting, one of the things that for me has become a hindrance to the proclamation and the living out of the gospel in our nation right now, and I have a right to say this now because I've been living here 12 years, it's recreation and sport. I will come to be with God's believers if it doesn't interfere with our walk in the park with our mates when the sun is shining. We'll come to be with God's community as long as it doesn't interfere with the football, some match that's being played, or the Formula One. I'll meet with God's My friends, if we are passionate about the kingdom, if we have been loved with a perfect love that has set us free from all anger and condemnation, I want to do everything that I can to be with God's people and I don't care what is on television. You can see this is not a very popular message to preach. So here we have... What James is calling us to, he's calling us to an active faith that compels us out of love for God to live di- differently. And after slapping the people around, uh, he uses an incredibly positive, wonderful example. And he says, consider Abraham, your father, called the friend of God. And James invites us to an infinitely more uh, wonderful relationship with God that goes way beyond just being saved and assured that we are sons and daughters. I believe that with all my heart. When you experience the grace of God, there's an assurance that comes that you are saved, that you are his son, that you are his daughter, and no one can take that away from you. James is not speaking about that. He's talking about a living righteousness that is active in your life that brings you into an intimate, intimate relationship with God and is exemplified in the life of Abraham. And I want to spend the next couple of minutes trying to look at that together with you. I want to say this as as we look at it. Just remember that James is the first written letter to the early church. Most theologians would agree with that. This is before Paul has come back from the desert with his amazing revelation that he starts to write down. This is before the Gospels have been written. James writes the first letter to the early believers who are scattered and persecuted and they're all over the Mediterranean basin and they are discouraged because things haven't worked out quite like they thought they were going to work out and he's trying to encourage them. That's why he writes... And uh, most of what Paul wrote wasn't clearly understood until after the fourth and fifth century when Augustine, one of the church fathers, came along and made some things clear and then people began to understand the importance of what Paul was saying. And many didn't know what Paul was saying, the importance of what Paul was saying, but how Paul preached and understood the gospel has transformed the world forever. And much of what I would hold to is centered on Paul's theology of the gospel and what it means. I wanna say this, one thing is clear. Paul's word to us is, is true. And he preaches a justification that, uh, uh, of, uh, that we are saved by grace through faith, that we contribute nothing towards the cross. We come dirty, rotten scoundrels and we, we, we come to the cross and we are forgiven sinners. That's how Paul sees salvation. I hold to that absolutely. So why then does James confuse things by saying that Abraham was justified by works when I believe you contribute nothing to the cross? There are no works that you bring with you. Well, I wanna say both of these things are true. What Paul is doing and what James is doing, they're writing, uh, James is writing about two different events in Abraham's life that are separated by 30 years and when he uses the words justify, he's meaning something different from what Paul means. And once we understand that, it makes perfect sense and this scripture doesn't become contentious at all. So James is thinking, when we read the scripture, James is thinking of two events in Abraham's life separated by 30 years. And I think uh, whenever you read the scripture, remember a couple of verses sometimes can be a big space of time, and sometimes we don't think like that. But here, just in a couple of verses, James writes and encapsulates 30 years of Abraham's Life. When Paul writes in Romans 8, Romans 3:28, he says, we are justified, we are saved, and we rest in this faith that comes by grace alone. He's referring to an event in Abraham's life that took place between Genesis 12 and Genesis 15. And if you read those particular verses, it's where God speaks to this pagan moon-worshiping guy called Abraham, Abram, who's not even looking for God, and he speaks to him and he says, Abraham, leave your people, leave your family, go to Canaan, I'll show what to do, I want you to go on a journey with me. And Abraham starts walking. And he doesn't even go to Canaan, okay, he goes to Egypt first, because he doesn't really listen to God, because there's a famine. He lies about his wife, Sarah, says, it's not my wife, it's my sister. All disease breaks out in Pharaoh's household, and he gets thrown out of the country in disgrace. Not a great start, Abraham. So he's already on an imperfect journey with God, learning obedience as he goes. And if you read the story, God also says to him, leave your family. And he finds it hard to disentangle himself from Lot. And if you look at Genesis 13, that pre- all sorts of problems, he has to end up rescuing Lot after these guys have fought this battle. And he goes back and he rescues Lot, and, and Lot is a selfish guy who chooses the best land for himself. Unfortunately, the best land is by Sodom and Gomorrah, and that's got a whole lot of problems for Lot. But Genesis 15 arrives, and here Abraham, who's um, refused to take any spoils of the battle from the king of Sodom as reward, he says, I'm trusting God for my future. He gives one-tenth of all he has to a priest king called Melchizedek, who's a picture of Jesus. Uh, Talk about giving. Abraham tithed, gave 10% before the law ever told him to do it. He was a man who walked by the Spirit, and out of obedience and love, he offers up 10% of everything that he has to God. No one had to tell him to do it. No one had to put law on him to do it. He did it because he was obeying the Spirit of God in his life. And then Genesis 15, after he's done this amazing thing of offering up all his wealth, he gets this this moment of self-doubt. Isn't that amazing? Sometimes when you're generous and you've given the money, you sometimes think, oh, God, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? I can't, there's not enough. You know what what God says to him? He says, Abraham, I am your shield. I am your very great reward. Do you want to know what the word for reward is? It's sakar, S-A-K-A-R. It is directly translated as salary. After he's been generous... God says to him, Abraham, don't fear. I am your reward. I am your salary. I will provide for you. Beautiful, isn't it? This imperfect walk of this man. And then... uh, he decides to help God, so he sleeps with Hagar, produces Ishmael, because <laughs> he can't believe God. It says in Genesis 17, God says, I'm gonna give you a son. He says, I'm, I'm 100, I'm 99, my wife is as good as dead. You've gotta be kidding, God. And he laughs, remember the story. And so, he's over 100 when his child is born, and he's been waiting for 100 years for this child, And so if you do the maths, he was 75 in Genesis 12. When he gets saved, Genesis 15, he's about 80. When the promise comes in Genesis 17 of the child, that is promised, the child of the promise, he's 99. He's over 100 when the child is born. And when Genesis 22 happens and he's about to sacrifice Isaac on the, on the altar, his son is a teenager, 10 to 13 years of age. So from Genesis 12 to Genesis 22, 30 years. What is my point? My point is he was saved in Genesis 15 and began to walk. He began to walk. He began to hear the voice of the Spirit. It wasn't perfect. He made many mistakes along the way. He lied. He slept with somebody else. He all the stuff. And yet, at the end of it all, when he offers up his son, God smiles on his integrity and he says, this man, has learned to walk with me, this man has obeyed me, see how he loves me, this is my friend. It's incredible. So don't, if I have time, I'd like to speak to you about Rahab, the prostitute. She didn't wait 25 years, she came imperfect, she had no chance to redeem her life. And she offers, she she obeys God immediately. Goes against her culture, her town, her king. She welcomes the spies in and she's saved. Not because of what she did, but because of what she believed. Now friends, when we first get saved, our faith is passive. Ephesians tells us that. It says, Ephesians 2.8, for it's by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's a gift. It's not the result of work. It's that none of us, can boast, I've done nothing to deserve the mercy of God. But what Romans 6 says, and I started with that, we are dead to sin, but we are alive, made alive in Christ. Because you are alive in Christ, you want to do, you start doing some stuff for Him. Not to earn your salvation, but because out of love and devotion, and God, I'm so grateful for all you've done for me, I just want to live to please you. And it's not hard for me. What is hard sometimes, let I me mean, not kid it is hard. And there are many ups and there are many downs. But that kind of obedient faith pleases God. He smiles on that. He smiles on that integrity. And he says, you are my friend when you, when you are walking like that. And uh, I said this in the first uh, um, meeting. There's an assurance of salvation that comes when we believe on the cross. And that's, a, that, that's we are... We are assured legally that we are friends of God when that happens. We can know an assurance of salvation that no one can take away. I'm not talking about that, and James is not talking about that, because James is inviting us to this relationship with God that comes as we are obedient, and we enjoy a deep intimacy with Him. And the best example I can think of is that I, I, I've been married to my wife now for 20 years, The legal part of that happened uh, years ago in a church where we made some promises and said, God, we're trusting you for our lives and our future. I'm legally married to her. The legal part happened 20 years ago. The legal part does not guarantee a brilliant marriage. How many of you are married would would agree with me? What does a brilliant marriage come by? It comes through years of walking together. It comes through many highs, many lows, many tears, many fights, many makeups, many uh, the privilege of, of having children and letting them change you and transform you. That's how a great marriage is birthed and continues. It's the same with God. We are legally assured that we are saved when we come to the cross and say, God, I need you, and please forgive me. You are saved instantly. That moment, you go from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, and you never go back. And this is the scandal of the gospel. The gospel says even if you don't behave well, you don't go back. It's scandalous. That's why it's called good news. Do I believe that, uh, that uh, um, we can behave any way we choose? No, because I believe in rewards. I believe that there are great rewards for us in heaven and on earth. And I said, I want to be at the party, the banqueting house one day. I want to be at Jesus' table. Not crept in the back door, sitting at the back because I've not lived my life for him. I'm saved. I'm in heaven. I want to enjoy some reward in heaven. I want to enjoy some reward here on earth. It's a different thing that we're talking about. So, there's an obedience that comes from faith. Faith enables us, grace enables us to live a life of obedience. And that, that's what Genesis 15 shows us. Faith first, Abraham believed. Obedience second, that's what he did after he had believed. And so, I just want to, in five minutes, try and just talk a little bit about becoming friends of God. What can this relationship that James is calling us to, what can it show us about friendship with God? What does true friendship with God look like? I want to say two things from the story of Abraham. Genuine friendship with God shows loyalty to him, even in the face of seeming disloyalty from him. What do I mean by that? Well, Abraham is asked to offer up his son Isaac, the son he'd been trusting for for 100 years, the son that he was longing for, and the son who was also the son of God's promise to him, he could not possibly have imagined what God had up his sleeve when when he was asked to sacrifice his son. It could not possibly have made sense to him, but he so trusted God Hebrews tells us Hebrews eleven nineteen tells us he so trusted God that he believed that if he sacrificed his son God would instantly raise him from the dead. That's how much he believed him. That's an amazing thing, trusting God like that. Daniel chapter three verse seventeen. You know the story well from Bible from nursery school. No, no what's it? Sunday school. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Yeah thrown into the fire, bow down and worship, will never worship. And what do they say? They say, our God is able to deliver us from the fiery furnace, but even if he does not, we will not worship him. That's a friend of God. Even if he does not, we will not worship him. What about Polycarp? I love the story of Polycarp. He was a second century martyr. And he is, as he was being tied to the stake, God guy whispers to him and he says, he says, all you have to do, friend, all you have to do is pray to Caesar. All you have to do is deny your Lord and you'll go free. Just compromise now. You know what Polycop says? He says, 86 years I've loved and served him. 86 years I've walked with him. You think I'm going to give up now? That's a friend of God. Sorry, sometimes I cry when I'm happy, all right? It's not that I'm sad. He went on. He was obedient to the end. Second thing about genuine friendship is that when we are genuinely friends with God, he can share deepest secrets that he has with us. He doesn't share them with everybody. He shares them with his friends. And he was longing to share something with Abraham. If you read the Old Testament, right from the Garden of Eden, God was looking for a relationship. And so because Adam sinned, relationship was broken. And he, he sets this thing in, in process so that he can become friends with us again. And so Abraham is part of that amazing story of salvation and God starts to whisper to him and tell him things. And, and so he says, Abraham, through your seed, you're gonna be a blessing to many nations. You, you, you're gonna, through your seed, all the nations of the world are gonna be blessed. You see, because Abraham is a is a, a man. He thinks seed means babies. Richard. Seed means babies. So of course, this is how it's gonna happen. I'm gonna have lots of babies. It's a natural thing. And so that's why he tries to make it happen with Hagar, and it, it doesn't work. And eventually he does have a baby. And then God says to him, I want you to offer up the baby. And he says, What? Can't be? Doesn't understand why God is whispering to him. He's trying to trying to teach him something else. He's saying, the people that are gonna come through your line, that are gonna be a blessing to everybody else on the face of the planet, it's gonna have nothing to do with the natural procreative process. It's gonna have everything to do with faith. And I want you to give the natural thing to me. I want your son to be sacrificed on the cross and you're gonna get him back. But you don't know that. He didn't know that until he actually did. And he got him back, and the Hebrew says he got his son back in a different way. Now he was the child of the promise that through all of Abraham's seed, you and I can enjoy a relationship with God through faith. It is absolutely incredible. And if Abraham had given up in the moment when he didn't understand what God was doing and he had not trusted God, he would have blown the whole thing. I said in the first meeting, one of the most poignant verses in the whole of the scripture for me, having two sons and knowing how much I love my boys, it says Abraham is walking with Isaac hand in hand. They're walking up and they see the mountain. Abraham says, we're going there. And when they get to the mountain and his son Isaac, his little teenage boy says, Dad, I see the fire. See the altar. Where's the sacrifice? Can you imagine what that did to Abraham's heart? After all these years, and he prophesies, he says, he says, God himself will provide the sacrifice. It is absolutely incredible. The gospel is incredible. And Jesus says the same thing, and I am finished now. Jesus says the same thing to his disciples. John fifteen fifteen. No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. Because Why? for all that I heard from my father I have made known to you what an incredible possibility friends what a privilege we we can have assurance of salvation we're saved we're friends of god but james is saying don't don't camp there God is inviting you to an intimacy. He's inviting you to a relationship with Him that comes as you walk by the Spirit and you learn from Him and you make some mistakes, but He guides you and He's wanting to speak over all of our lives and say, look at my friends. Look how they love me. When it's good, when it's bad, look how they love me. Look how they give themselves to me. They're not, they're not doubting whether I love them. They know that I love them. They are assured of that. But look how they persevere. Look how they walk. Look how they enjoy each other. Look how they love the church. Look how they love people. It's a different thing. Can we uh, can we worship, guys? I want to conclude by saying the same thing that I said at the first meeting. There is this invitation that James is calling us to, and I just want to ask you, not in an accusatory way at all, what is the last thing that God asked you to do? Might might be reaching out to your neighbour. It might be taking a risk at work, speaking to someone of Christ. I do want to just say this, and I was chatting to God at the coffee break, and He said, "You know, I, I really battle to to. There's so many doubts that I have." I want to say this, I, I came as a South African to this nation 12 years ago. There were things that I, I had to unlearn from my culture that I'm still unlearning. God doesn't care about our culture. Can I say one thing lovingly that I think as English people we need to unlearn? We always have a caveat for everything. We always have an if and a but. Always. And so when we read the word of God, we hear the promise of God to us, and then automatically our brain is going, oh yes, but what about that? What about that? If that, what about that? There's too many caveats. There's a simplicity of obedience that God is calling us to. To believe what he says, to activate it in our lives, and to live it out. That is what pleases him. Amen. Can we pray together? Jesus, I thank you for... It's an amazing church, and I thank you for all that you're doing through them. And God, I just pray for grace to be activated in their life. Thank you, thank you for the saving grace that comes by believing on Jesus. But God, we ask that the power of the Holy Spirit would come. Even as we worship you now, Lord, we want to lift you up in this place. We want to lift the roof off of this place as we worship you. And God, it's our commitment as we sing to say, Lord, use us, take us. We want to be obedient sons and daughters. Lord, we don't want to be lazy in any way, not striving to please you, but just living our lives to please you because we love you in every way. And God, I ask that you would do an amazing work in every single one of us by the power of your Holy Spirit, and in Jesus' name, amen.